30. Go ahead and turn there, Psalm 30. A number of years ago, I was in my first few weeks as an associate pastor, and uh, I was asked to go to the local hospital because there was a man who was going to be having surgery. And so this was my second time going to do a pastoral visit at the hospital. And so I remember training myself or reminding myself of my lines, what other people had told me, what I was supposed to say, how you know, the sequence of events, how I was supposed to go was quite mechanical. And I went into the room. The gentleman's name was uh, Mark Locatelli. I still, still remember and I went into the room, and honestly, I don't remember what I said, but I asked him questions, and, and he told me about what was going on with his uh, health scare. He had had some severe symptoms that had led him to uh, be in the hospital that day, and he was going to have uh, surgery to remove a tumor that was in his brain. His wife was next to him, putting on a, a strong front, but you could tell she was quite concerned. And there were so many questions. Would the man even survive the surgery? What would happen afterwards if he did? How many of these surgeries are we going to have to do? All sorts of unknowns. And so I don't remember all that I said, but I prayed over Mark and then I left and, and that was it. Um, Mark ended up, you should know, uh, thankfully, he ended up uh, having a successful surgery. The tumor was removed. And uh, I would see him normally or regularly at church. Every year in, in the month of June, uh, Mark will put a, uh, I still follow him on social media, he'll still put a Facebook post up talking about how blessed he is to have life that uh, with that close uh, scare with death he could not have had. And uh, having made a full recovery and... Um, thinking about him when I would see him at church, there was just this sense of gratitude every single time that he would have for life. Uh, you see, uh, he would show up to church sometimes with his, his uh, bicycle outfit on, and you would see pictures on social media. The man would always be uh, getting into either, a, it seems like, some sort of new cycling contest. And so that's how he changed his life afterwards. He took better care of his health, and he started really getting into cycling. Uh, my mother, I think I've mentioned this, has, has done two, two, two Ironmans. And, um, yeah, it's incredible. And so she, I think of what she has said repeatedly, you can never be mad when you're on a bicycle. And um, I, I'd have to ask... I, Dan Copeland, are you in here? I think I'd have to ask you uh, whether that translates over to motorcycling. I think it does. Um, but I, I think it's just so true. When I look at this man's life, it just demonstrates that sometimes it takes a close scare with death to make you appreciate the life that you have. It's a, whether it be a surgery, a car wreck, or some other kind of health thing. And I, I just wonder, when I see this happen in other people's lives... And they make that transformation, and then I see in other people's lives that they have not made a transformation. I go, why is it that it takes something crazy, perhaps for someone to hit rock bottom or a crazy life-altering event, for someone to be willing to change? We know that we should have gratitude for the life that we have, but we don't. 
And yet that's what scripture calls us to have. Gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is powerful. Uh, I was looking at a study that Penn State did on gratitude in the workplace, and uh, they gave some statistics out. I thought you would find this interesting. Um, This is just one that's kind of general. It says, regular gratitude journaling. I don't know if you do this. If you're a regular uh, journaler, if if you have a diary or a journal, and you keep track of life events, but they found that regular gratitude journaling was shown to have uh, a result in 25% increased sleep quality in the, sleep, in the study that they did. Better sleep if you do gratitude journaling. They found that 70% of employees, this should not be surprising, right? 70% of employees would feel better about themselves if their boss was more grateful, and 81% of them would work harder if they knew that they were being appreciated in a, in a survey, that, survey that they had done. It seems kind of obvious, Gratitude reduces toxic aggression, frustration, and regret, even after receiving ne- negative feedback. And so maybe you know that, you know that uh, overused strategy. You have something critical you need to say to somebody, so you say the good thing first, and then you say the critical thing afterwards, and you sandwich it with the good thing afterwards, right? And so um, they found that lack of gratitude is a major contri- uh, contributor to job turnover, burnout, absenteeism. You don't really need a study to tell you that. It's, it's pretty obvious. Again, um, whatever, you think, whatever you think of Cal Berkeley, uh, Cal Berkeley also did a study. And uh, Cal Berkeley uh, looked at a group of people who did uh, the same kind of gratitude journaling things. They had a, they, they did, had a, a one group that, that did uh, this testing and then the other ones who did not do it. And they watched them over a period of time. Did gratitude journaling over here? Great. This group did not do it over here. And after that was done, they did scans on their brain as they did certain activities. And what they found for this group over here was that their medial prefrontal cortex, that's that's right here, um, that had more activity. And the suggestion that came from the study was that because there was more activity and awareness uh, for decision-making, all of that, there was a greater awareness and sensitivity to gratitude as a concept itself, and suggested that being someone who is thankful over a longer period of time has an impact even on the wiring of your brain. And so if you want Aaron's unscholarly, unprofessional medical opinion, perhaps that headache that you have at the front of your head right there is due to not being grateful. And so I'll leave that, you can take that however you'd like. And so it's important. Gratitude's powerful when we receive it, right? Nobody likes to feel unappreciated. And gratitude is incredibly powerful when we wield that and bless others. And so it's no mistake that in Scripture you would find gratitude or thanksgiving all over the place. You're going to see it right here in Psalm 30 that we're going to look at. What David is going to do in this passage is he's going to make several moves. He's going to, he's going to start with thanksgiving for God's deliverance over him. He's going to call others into that thanksgiving as well. He's going to recount about how God has delivered him from his sickness and how that sickness came from a judgment that God put on him for being prideful. Prideful in his own provisions. And then David's going to move, finally, to how God restores him to gladness. So gratitude, grief, restoration, and gladness forevermore. Let that be true of us. Let me pray, 
and we'll look at our passage before us. Lord Jesus, gratitude does not come naturally to us. We see our problems more than we see the things that we need to be thankful for. Uh, Lord, we pray that what we do right here would not be a, like a trivial Thanksgiving meal conversation where we just say, this is what I'm thankful for, and then we just move on with our lives. But we pray that what we look at here, Holy Spirit, would transform how we think, even down to the wiring of our own brains, so that we would be blessed as we're a blessing to others. Lord, let us see what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol. You may want to circle that word. We'll come back to it. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David begins, and he kind of put together what he's saying here. He begins by showing thanksgiving or gratitude to the Lord for having delivered him from an apparent sickness or illness. And so we can get, that's what we can gather here. There's, there's two things that happen uh, from what, what David has cried out for. He's cried out and he says, Lord, deliver me. God delivers him first, but he does something else. He not only delivers, but he also keeps David's enemies from rejoicing over him. And instead, David is the one who is doing the rejoicing. He says, I will, ex I will extol you. That's my ESV. Maybe your translation says, I will exalt you, if that's more familiar. He lifts up to his Lord with an incredible sense of gratitude. And it's an incredible example for us, right? How often do we, do we wait so long in the petitioning to our Lord and say, Lord, I need you to show up in this area? We looked at Psalm 27 last week, and if you were with us, we saw how we are supposed to boldly approach the throne room of grace and say, Lord, deliver me. Things aren't good. I need you to show up right now. Lament Psalms. But sometimes when we are so into the lamenting, and then God answers the prayer, we forget to circle back and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you did. And we move on to the next crisis, the next thing that's right in front of us. And what David does not do, he gets it right with the first verse. He says, I have not forgotten. I remembered what the Lord did for me, and I extol you, Lord, for delivering me from that sickness. I want to ask you this morning, what is in your life that God has done to deliver you from that you haven't said just a thank you for? Who has God placed in your life? Would you describe yourself if someone, would, would there be enough evidence in your life for someone to accuse you of being a person full of thanksgiving and gratitude? Look at David's example before us. Don't forget to circle back. Thank, thank you for those God uses in your life and what he does. There's, there's a couple words here that you may have noticed right there at the very beginning. The first word I told you to circle if you'd like, and that was Sheol. There was another word that was used there when it was called the pit. David is basically saying, I got really close to death. Your version, by the way, may say the grave, but that's just translating the Hebrew word Sheol. And so what is that word Sheol, the pit? Maybe you 
go, okay, Aaron, I've, I've got heaven and I've got hell. That's pretty straightforward. That one makes sense to me. These are some new words right here. How do you make sense of that? And I want to ask you, have you ever thought about the Old Testament understanding of the afterlife? I, I think it's important since we're here um, that we unpack this just a little bit so that so that next time, I'm doing this for the sake of you reading your Bible. So when you come across these words, you know what to do with them, okay? Sheol. The Bible uses, Old Testament uses different words for this concept of death and the afterlife. Sheol, Abaddon, Sahat, that's the pit. So Sheol and the pit, same thing we're talking about here. And Sheol refers to the place of the dead, the underworld where all people go when they die. We mentioned that it's referred to as the pit again. This is where both good and wicked people go. So think of it as the underworld where people go. So James Leo Garrett in his systematic theology describes it as this, that there's no clear division that's so clear that we get between good and wicked. All go there. And the evidence for that is you look at passages like Psalm 89, 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? No man can escape it. Or if you think about Jacob, what does Jacob say in Genesis 37 when uh, after uh, hearing about uh, how Joseph's brothers come to him and, and say, uh, Father, your son is dead. And they show him the evidence with the robe dipped in blood and they try to console their father. And the passage tells us that all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, comforted, and he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Now, Jacob was not the most righteous person in the scriptures, but he's definitely a part of God's chosen family, his instrument, and he's generally a, considered to be a righteous person in scripture. And so, and so both Jacob and Joseph, presumably, and in, in his understanding here, all people, that's where they go. So you with me so far? That's what Sheol is. And translated that word Sheol into the Greek, you get this word, Hades. And so that's where you get the concept of Hades, referring to the same thing, Sheol and Hades. When you get into the intertestamental period, that's talking about the time of the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of John the Baptist ministry. We're talking about, about 400 years here. During that time, you get a developing view where this place called Sheol is divided really into two kinds of places, a place of judgment for the wicked and a place for deliverance for the righteous, if you will. And so... There's understanding that there's a division within this one place. And as far as terminology, the place for the righteous in Sheol is a place that is called paradise or Abraham's bosom. On the other side, if generally you're referring to the negative part, you might just call it Hades or you just might call it Sheol or another word would be Gehenna. So there's a developing separation here. A clear instance of this Jewish understanding, maybe your mind immediately went there, is that you could go to the passage in Luke where Jesus tells about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know that parable, how it goes, there's, there's two men, they, they, one lives a godly life, one lives an ungodly life, the poor man is godly, the rich man is ungodly, they die, and what happens? There's a chasm 
that we're told about. We're on the one side, Lazarus is on, but on the other side in Hades, that is where the rich man is. And the rich man says, deliver me, just, just put a, a little bit right there on my tongue. Um, and it's a place of torment. And so when you put it all together, you consider other New Testament passages, 2 Corinthians 5, Revelation 6, or when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. And then you think about what he says to Mary after he rises from the dead, and he says to Mary, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. That's a curious statement. Where did Jesus go between Good Friday and Sunday morning? He, doesn't, he hasn't ascended to heaven yet. He's gone to paradise. And if we had more time, we'd talk about how he goes and proclaims a word of victory over those who are in the grave. There's so much more we could say. But if we had put it all together, this is how theologians have understood these various passages of the afterlife. Sheol is that general concept of the place of the dead, Old Testament. But then it begins to develop, and we have two compartments, righteous, paradise, and we have, on the other hand, we have Gehenna, the unrighteous part, or Hades, if you're just referring to the negative aspect. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, after Christ's death, believers go to be in the presence of Jesus, and those who are wicked go to Hades, and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment, read Revelation 20, after the final judgment, and will be thrown into the lake of fire in hell. That is the understanding of the afterlife, briefly. And so I say that for a couple reasons. You should consider that when you begin your Bible from Genesis 1, friends, and you go all the way to the end of Revelation, the Bible progressively reveals itself through a grand narrative. It's a great story. You should read your Old Testament and see how God progressively is revealing himself to his people. But I also point this out just for those of us who in this room, maybe you just stumbled in this morning or you're just checking out Bethesda, but you know in your heart of hearts you don't know Christ. I want you to know. I mean this sincerely. We here at Bethesda believe in this book and we believe that there's an afterlife and we believe that there's more beyond the grave and we believe that it really matters. And this is why we believe Jesus is so important. We believe that you must believe in him because there are consequences in the end. And the question is, will you turn to the one who's gone to the gates of hell himself, has the keys over it of death itself, and who has overcome the grave. That's my prayer that you would turn to him if you don't know him today. David gives us, this, gives us this imagery. And he says, I was close to that pit, but God brought me out of it. And here's what I want to say. Look at verse 4. Sing to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The natural tendency when you've experienced something that is praiseworthy by yourself is that you want to share it with others. 
whether it's a good book, a good movie, did you see the ball game last night, whatever it is, we have a natural built-in tendency that when we experience something that is incredible, we want to bring others into our praise with us. And that is what David is doing right here. He's saying, look what the Lord has done for me. And then he gets corporate with praise. He goes, let's all do this together. Let's praise the Lord. The object of David's joy here is his personal God. I have been waiting for a moment to point this out. I have not pointed this out the whole psalm series. But do you notice how he describes God here? What word does he use? You see that? Capital L-O-R-D. If you don't know this, that refers to the personal name in the Hebrew, which is Yahweh. And so when the Hebrews would come across that, pat, that word, which was so precious, this personal name for God, Yahweh, they instead would say Adonai, which means Lord. And that's what we have translated into here, Lord. And so David is saying, look at what my personal God has done for me. This one who I live in intimacy with, the one who I experience the utmost joy with, he delivered me from the brink. He knows my name. Look what he's done for me. His anger lasts for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Or as Josh Smith sums it up, we suffer, we pray, God delivers, and we rejoice. I believe when you look at Psalm 30, the first five verses give you the story from one vantage point. But when you switch to the next set of verses, it gives you the story from another vantage point. Same issue going on here, and I'll show you. Same issue going on, but he begins to get more personal. Look with me in verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. I think the other translations get it right. It's a, it's an, in the Hebrew, it's an imperfect, and it's translated as a, as a past tense. That's what that means here. So I think it's to you, Lord, I cried, and to the Lord, I pled for mercy, referring to what happened in the past. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Again, referencing Sheol. Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And so now David takes us through a, a path that he went through. He went through a pathway of self-reliance, which led to God's punishment, and then eventually turning to David's own repentance. And so he had self-reliance, experienced God's punishment, and it led to his repentance. Lord, I plead for mercy. David did what we are so often capable of doing, taking God's good blessings and twisting them, making them our own and saying, look what I have. Look what I've accomplished. Taking his favor and blessing and prosperity and then saying, I alone have accomplished it. And what God does to David in this moment is he disciplines him. Think of Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. 
Friend, I would ask you to consider for a moment that possibly the reason why you keep hitting a wall in your life, ask the Spirit, uh, let him do his work. Is it possible that you're hitting a wall in your life because the Lord might be the very one who is opposing you? He loves you so much that he is so jealous for you that he will not let your idolatry get in the way of what he desires and what he wants for you. And so he is not willing to let you stay where you are. And so God disciplines those whom he loves. And it should lead us to repentance and turning from sin. You ever see somebody who's incredibly prideful and arrogant? It's definitely, I know it's something that I deal with in my own way. I know if others have looked at me at certain points and said, yeah, buddy, you deal with pride. I go, thank you. Um, I'm working on that. We all deal with it. It comes out in various ways. But if you, you looked at others and have you ever gone, it, it's going to take a fall for God to get a hold of that person. It, it's going to take something serious happening in their life for them to be able to see the blind spots and what they are doing that they cannot see right now. You know people like that? Have you experienced that yourself? That, that you realize that there were things that bubbled up to the surface in, in your suffering because you hit rock bottom finally that could not have been revealed to you otherwise. I, I just want to say, God is capable of blessing, but he is also He is also capable of momentary affliction in our life that is severe. And it may be his severity that is needed to get a hold of us. And I just want to confront whoever needs to hear this in this place today. Don't let it take a fall for God to get a hold of you. Don't let it take your marriage falling apart, losing your children, your reputation going into the gutter for you to finally wake up and go, What have I been doing? My prayer for you is that it would not take those things, but that you would see in God's word this morning that he actually wants what's best for you in him. Don't let a life-altering event be what it takes for you to say, I'll do better, Lord. But instead, humble yourself now before him. You notice how David takes this line of attack in his prayer, it's very interesting to me. The way he prays, he says, Lord, if I die, that's one less person to praise you. It's just very interesting to me the way he does that. He goes, if, if I go down to Sheol, I got to use my lips to be able to praise you, and I won't be able to do that. And so, Lord, you see how, how important he sees how he values his life, the important way in which he values it, that his life exists so that he would please the Lord and praise him. And he goes, Lord, don't let me go. I want to keep praising you and pleasing you. Does that mark our lives? Can we identify with this and say, the essence of my life, glorify God and enjoy him forever and how we please him. I I hope that's true for us. And so David takes this psalm and how God has answered his prayer. This God who, because of what David had done in his pride, God afflicted him leading to his sickness And then God delivered him. David ends with these words. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
And so I think the lesson here is that when God restores us, the only right response is gladness in him, gratitude in him forevermore. And so he does what he so often does in these Psalms. He ends where he started. He began by saying, I extol you, O Lord, and he ends by saying, I will give thanks to you forevermore. And so the Lord lifts him up from his humiliation and brings him into a state of eternal gladness. You know, and I read this passage, friends, and here's what it reminds me when I look to Christ. What it reminds me of is this. We ourselves get in trouble that leads to affliction that then God in his grace lifts us out of. That's you and I. But the difference between you and I and Jesus is that Jesus steps into our trouble and our affliction, and through his resurrection from the dead, his father lifts him up. You and I go down because of our own doing. Jesus comes down because of his free grace towards us and his loving kindness towards us. He does it out of love towards us. And so when you dwell on what he has done for you, man, you have gratitude for what, you, what he's done. It's the only right response. You think of the passage in Luke 7 where, where Jesus is sitting with a whole bunch of Pharisees at that meal, right? He's sitting at that meal, and there's a, a sinful woman, subscribe, sinful woman, comes up to him, and, she's, and she takes her hair, her tears, and ointment, and begins cleaning his feet. How strange might that be, right? She does that with utter sincerity, and the Pharisees look at her with judgment, and interaction begins to go back and forth. Jesus speaks to one of them, and he tells them a parable. He says, Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He says, two men, one had double the debt of the other, and they were both forgiven. Which one is going to be more thankful at the end of it? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, I love that little bit in there, I suppose, I guess, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And so he goes after Simon, and he says, when I walked into this place, you didn't greet me the way you should have. But this woman here has been taking care of my needs since I showed up. And then he says these key words, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Don't look strangely at the person who is expressive in their worship or in their prayer or in how they talk about God as if he's actually their friend. That person may be more aware of their sinful state that they've been redeemed of than you are. Let us not look at others with judgment and how they cry out to the Lord and say, with passion, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Let us look at ourselves and go, Father, do I rightly see what you've done for me? Do I rightly see my sinful state and what you've lifted me out of? Lord, let me see clearly. Christianity, friends, is not meant to be a stoic, dry, dead, crusty religion. It is meant to be a living faith which Christians can't help but break out in gratitude for what God has done for them. There's some things I want to give you as we go out from here. Some things I would like for you to think of, and here they are. I'd like you to think of everything I've said up until this point, but particularly these, these few things. 
Let us be very cautious, friends, about the prosperity that God brings into our life. Israel never did well with blessing, right? Israel never did well with blessing. David did not do well with blessing. Let us look at what God has given us and hold it with a loose grip and hold tightly instead to Jesus and say, everything that I own right now is the future stuff of garage sales, of junkyards, and somebody else's possessions. And say, Lord, would you use that to leverage it? What I have now that I'm borrowing for the kingdom of God. Be cautious about the prosperity God brings into your life. Second, don't waste the momentary afflictions that he may bring. Whether you're an innocent sufferer, sufferer or whether it is your fault, don't waste it because in it regardless, there's things he may want to reveal to you. Not may, he wants to reveal to you. Don't waste those moments. There's things that will bubble up that you couldn't have seen otherwise. Like you want to know what God is showing me right now? This is the thing that, as I've talked to other brothers over the last week, as I think of challenges that I faced in my own life, you want to know what, if I could be really honest with you, like as if I haven't been honest already, you, you want to know what, what the Lord is showing me? Is I just don't trust him enough. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. I just don't trust him enough. I know I should, but I don't. I was talking to a, a good brother, and he asked me how many times I've preached over the last year, and I said about 50. I checked, it's, it's 53 over the last year. To which he said, well, being in the word that much as a preacher, you're going to see your sin more clearly than anybody else. And he is right. Like, good grief, guys. Like, if you feel convicted by the passages we look at on a Sunday morning, how do you think I feel, right? How do you think I feel re reading this? Oh, man, preacher can't preach to others until it hits the word speaks to him first. That's what God's been doing with me. I've, I've got to be the one that God speaks to before I can speak to y'all. And so I just want to say, I, he's revealing to me in my own stuff, I don't trust him enough. That's where Aaron needs to grow. What is it for you? Third, having a heart of gratitude is going to help us fight entitlement. Again, when you realize that the Lord doesn't owe you anything, but he has gifted you with so much, you will then look at the things that you do have and go, thank you for giving me that, Lord. You didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve it. You want to fight entitlement, do it with gratitude. Fourth, I just want to ask you a question. Have you made enough space in your life to even be able to have gratitude? Meaning, have you made enough space in your life to have time for reflection? You can't think about what the Lord's done for you, friend, if you don't make time to do it. If you've written down those things and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done here. I love doing that. It clears up my mind. If like, we've been doing this for a year. Have y'all not figured out yet that like, if I don't have these notes here, my mind is boop, 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 all over the place. I, I've got to have structure in my life. And having structure in my life comes with writing my thoughts down and being reminded of what God has done for me. Do you make enough space in your life to reflect so that you would have gratitude? And then the last one. Who do you need to show gratitude to? Not only the Lord, of course, but what persons in your life do you need to show gratitude that he's used? 
there were 10 lepers that Jesus healed, and only one came back to say thank you. Only one came back. There's a reason why I say to that little boy down there, probably 10,000 times so far in his little life, August, say thank you. Say please, right? That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And so why is there a reason we have to do it not one time, but 10,000? It's not innate. It's not natural, right? We have to be taught that. It doesn't come naturally. So I want to ask you the question, who are you thankful for and have you let them know lately? Do that. And I'll let you know in my own way. I want to end with this. Today marks the end of the first year of uh, getting to preach in front of you as your pastor here at Bethesda. As an aside, I'm, I'll be going on vacation here for about a week and a half, and um, over the next three Sundays, we'll have very capable ministers, Wes, Anthony, uh, Matt, Magnus, and the elders have understood that if I'm up here 100% of the time, I'll give you 80%, but if I'm up here 80% of the time, I'll give you 110%, and, and so with that, you should know that Bethesda is, I really believe, spoiled to have uh, good preachers here in our midst. But I want you to know as this first year concludes, I want each of you to know how thankful I am to be with you and serving you here at Bethesda. I mean that sincerely. There's those of you that I've gotten to know, and I want you to know for those of you who I have not yet gotten to know, I'm not happy about that. I look forward to getting to know you better. This is a special place. While many evangelical churches in the United States are on the decline that is not our story, at least not right now. We've gotten to see a number of salvations and baptisms. We've welcomed in 20 new members this year. We've got three in the queue. We're working on, on those. Oh, actually, we've got a lot more than three in the queue, but we're working, working on some of y'all. Um, we've supported over 30 missionaries or organizations together. We've gotten to start or revive our women's ministry here, celebrate recovery, celebrated their five-year anniversary last year. Awana is celebrating 50 years as the longest-serving Awana program in the state of South Dakota. That's coming up here soon. There's so much to be thankful for. We've had 79 people actually fill out those connection cards. I know you're probably sick of hearing it. Fill out the connection card, but 79 people have come through, and we've gotten to connect with them and get to know them just because they filled out a card. And the amazing thing is, in all these things that God has done over the last year that we can be thankful for, the amazing thing that floors me is that he could have used anybody else, but he chose us sinners to do it. It's amazing to think that. He chose us. Why, why, why do we get to be here at this time? So let's look backwards as we give thanks so that we would have sure footing and confidence as we step into the future. Let me give you just one word about this, and then I'll be done. The truth is that there's so much good, but there's so much more we know to do. There's about 30 churches here in Huron, and if every single one of them had 200 people in them, there would still be about 8,000 people who are unchurched on a Sunday morning. So for all intents and purposes, even though there's a lot of churches right here right here, just around Bethesda even. Just because there's a lot of churches, understand me on this, most of Huron is unchurched. 
And I don't know if you've taken time to think that one through. There are so many who are far from God. There are single mothers, there are shut-ins, there are young people in school, and young people who are graduated just hanging out with no purpose. There are those dealing with tragedy, there are those dealing with lack of direction. There are those who have not yet showed up to Huron yet. And my question for all of us is, what will we do about it? I promise you this, we will encounter it all and deal with it all with anxiety if we don't walk into that burden that God places upon us with a heart of gratitude for what he's already done. Lord, thank you for what you've done. How much more can you do, Lord? I can't wait for that. So I just want to say, who's going to tell them? We get to be the ones to stand in the gap. More on that, though. That's, that's part of the 80th anniversary sermon, so I'll save that for that time. Friends, I want you to know it's been a privilege to serve you. I'm thankful for you. I love you. I'm encouraged by what God has done. So no matter what momentary affliction he may bring, no matter what challenge we encounter, let's look forward with confidence, with hearts of gratitude, and then in him let our joy be complete. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.